This is an explanation of the Feast of Passover, the crown jewel of Jewish feasts, established in Leviticus 23.5, deeply symbolic of Jesus Christ and his deliverance of the Christians from sin in the world and significant to the Jews of the Exodus from Egypt, their own deliverance from slavery to the Promised Land. I'm Zola Levitt, a Hebrew Christian. I celebrated this holiday in the Jewish faith most of my life. I didn't fully realize the symbols of it or their meaning until I received Christ, and now I'm in a position to share with you both the Jewish ritual and its meaning and the Christian symbolism inherent in it. Let's begin with a prayer. I'll pray in the language of our Lord, and I'll translate for you. Baruch HaTor Anoi Eloheinu Velohei Avoseinu Elohei Avraham, Elohei Yitzchak, Elohei Yaakov, Elohei Yeshua HaMashiach, Melech HaOlam. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the father of Jesus, the Messiah, King of the universe. Amen. First, we should say a word about uh, why Christians should study Passover. And I think that uh, we should. I think that it's uh, deeply wrapped up, first of all, with our knowledge and appreciation of our Lord. This, after all, is something that he did. He would not have thought of omitting Passover from his uh, worship. He journeyed to Jerusalem to do Passover at the appropriate place, at the holy site. He traveled from Galilee, a very tiring, lengthy, hot uh, journey each year. And he is, in a way, symbolic of the whole Passover. The Apostle Paul refers to him as Christ, our Passover. We'll understand that as we go along here. Secondly, if Christians understand Passover, they would be better witnesses to the Jews. Paul's prayer in Romans 10.1 is, My prayer for Israel is, that they be saved. And, of course, we want to bring the Jews and everyone else to Christ, but in the case of the Jews, an understanding of this holiday, precious to them, the scene of their last great deliverance, when they were taken from slavery in Egypt to their promised land, would be a most effective testimony. Thirdly, there is a subtlety on God's part of imbuing this particular feast with great meaning in the Christian world, uh, symbolized here is Christ's sacrifice, blood and body, and his resurrection, so that uh, we can better appreciate how God has joined together the Jewish worship he required and the Christian salvation he provided. And there is always the possibility that we will all celebrate Passover in the kingdom. Jesus implies in Matthew 26, where the Last Supper, the Passover, is described, that he will go on celebrating this grand feast in the kingdom to come. He says to his gathered disciples, I will not drink this wine again until I drink it with you in the kingdom. The Passover wine is special, as is everything on Passover, and the Lord seems to be saying, 
I'm going now. I'll see you again when we sit down to the Passover table. The actual Feast of Passover is an eight-day-long celebration, and uh, it calls for a special preparation of the house where the feast is to be set up. Nowadays, the Jews uh, celebrate Passover at home. I did with my family. And the leavened bread, all leaven, has to be taken out of the house before the week of Passover starts. By taken out of the house, I mean that the house has to be absolutely innocent of the slightest bit of leaven. Now, this is an important symbolism for Christians to understand. Leaven in the Bible is symbolic of sin. And Paul uses the expression, purge out the old leaven and become a new lump. And sure enough, the Jews purged their homes of crumbs from bread or cake or cookies to prepare it for Passover. There's even a children's game where the father of the house hides crumbs on bookshelves and on the floor and in the corners and on the chairs, and then the children run around and find them and call for him, and he comes with a feather and a wooden spoon, and he brushes the crumbs into the spoon with the feather and throws them out the window. So it's quite a ceremony to purge out the old leaven from the house and to sanctify it for the Passover celebration. When this has been finished and Passover is ready to start on sundown of the 14th day of Nisan, as it commands in Leviticus 23.5, the table is set. And I'm going to describe the Passover table to you here. And then as we go through the service, I'll uh, refer to these uh, various artifacts that we find. First of all, a very ceremonious white tablecloth is put over a large table. Tall candlesticks uh, are available with candles to be lit. And a large uh, decorated plate, very ornate, uh, like uh, almost like a circular serving tray, with uh, small amounts of various uh, ceremonial foods which will be tasted as part of the worship service. Then there's a plate of matzahs, the unleavened bread, eaten by the Jews on Passover, as it was by the Lord and his disciples. And some white linen, which uh, we'll wrap these pieces in later on. I'll explain that as we go along. Then, of course, a complete dinner setting for each person at his place, because uh, a whole supper will be served as part of this worship. And then an empty place with a chair and a setting and a wine goblet for Elijah. Elijah the prophet is expected to come and announce the Messiah, and a place is set for him should he come at Passover, which would be an appropriate time. The Jews, of course, do not recognize Jesus as the Messiah and still await the Messiah's first coming. A pillow or a cushion is put on the chair of the father of the house, for reclining, because Passover is a happy holiday. Uh, it recalls the bitterness of slavery, but its point is the deliverance from Egypt in the Exodus, and the father of the house reclines on a cushion. The father presides over this service. He becomes kind of the high priest in the house for this holiday, and so he wears a long white robe called a kittle, and on his head a white yarmulke, what we think of as a skull cap, but ordinarily at uh, Passover it's a little bit more ornate, more like a white crown of satin.
Now the the plate with the bits of food we're going to come to, but I could say at this point what we would see on it as we approach the Passover table. There's parsley, which will be a bitter herb, a mixture called chorosis of nuts and wine and uh, bits of unleavened bread, which, uh, and, and sometimes apples, which uh, is like a mortar, and it symbolizes the mortar that the Hebrews had to make to put the bricks up to build the Egyptian buildings when they were slaves in Egypt. There's a bowl of salt water into which the parsley and other vegetables will be dipped. There's an egg roasted until it's very hard. And there's the shank bone of a lamb, which symbolism is very obvious. And then there's some horseradish. The symbols are all there to express uh, elements of the Exodus. This, of course, is literally a deliverance for the Jews, figuratively for those who follow Jesus, our Passover. So now if we're ready, we can approach the table. Everyone in the family sits down, and the mother comes forward to light the candles. Now it's a very interesting thing that only a woman may light candles in Judaism. And a woman has almost no other function in Jewish worship. In the Orthodox synagogue, the women uh, sit upstairs in the balcony, and they don't pray to God, and they don't read the scriptures or pray with the men. Their responsibility is strictly to run the home and not to address God. But on the occasion of lighting candles, which happens on every Sabbath and every holiday, a woman must do this. The symbolism for Christians, we think, is that the agency of a woman was chosen to bring us the light of the world. God might have sent his son by any number of means. He might have descended a full-grown man. He might have appeared out of a cloud, but as he is uh, going to in the future, of course. But the Lord chose to have him born like every one of us as a demonstration to us that, that he is, in a way, one of us. And born of a woman just like all of us. And so a woman brought the light to the world, and a woman brings the light to the Passover table. The mother covers her head, lights the candles, and repeats this blessing. Baruch atar anoi Eloheinu melech olam, shehechionu vekiyamanu vehigionu lazman hazeh. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has exalted us among all peoples and bade us to kindle the Sabbath lights. When the candles are lit and the light has come to the table, we're ready to start the service. The Father does uh, some prayers called uh, Kaddishes to sanctify the table, and very quickly we get to a part of the service called the Four Questions. The youngest member of the family present who's able to ask questions, which is usually a small child, asks of the father four questions. The questions deal with uh, elements of the service, why we're doing this. I was the youngest member of my family, and I used to chant those four questions. My voice uh, has not improved with age, but I'll do them a little for you here. They go like this. Manish tano halai lo hazeh mi ko halai lo huz 
שבחו הלילה שאונו רוכין, חומץ ומצו, הלילה הזה כולו מצו. And so forth. The questions mean, well, the first is, why is this night different from all other nights? And they go on to inquire about, why do we eat these special foods? Why does Father uh, recline, why, or actually everyone reclines in their chair? Why do we recline on this night when other nights we just sit normally straight up in a chair? And so uh, the youngster's questions occasion the Father's explanation. The whole rest of the service is a detailed answer to these four questions. And the answers, of course, have to do with... Uh, this night is different from all other nights because uh, at this time the angel came uh, avenging in, uh, in Egypt, killing the firstborn son of each Egyptian family in the tenth plague, but the angel passed over our homes which were marked with the blood of the Lamb. And so this is Passover. This is the anniversary of that Passover which spared us from death. Of course, the Christian symbolism is very obvious here, the angel of death or the wages of sin pass over us because we're marked with the blood of the Lamb. The Father goes on to talk about uh, the reclining in the chairs because the Jews were no longer slaves and the Jews were free and they could rest. And the special foods, well, each has a meaning and as the service progresses, we will all participate in these symbols. That is the next issue. Uh, the Father prays for a time. The whole story of Exodus is told, and as we come to various uh, moments where we have artifacts on the table, the Father desists from the retelling of the ancient story, and everyone participates, such as when they eat bits of these foods. We have already uh, run over the foods that are on the ceremonial circular plate and some of their symbols. The chorosis of the mortar, the parsley is a bitter herb, re recalling the bitterness of slavery. The salt water into which the parsley and bitter herbs are dipped uh, reminds us of the tears shed by our ancestors in those hard days. We must remember that the Hebrew nation were slaves for four centuries in Egypt. That's a very long time. The United States hasn't been a country yet 200 years. And these people were slaves for 400, worked every day from when they got up to when they went to bed in the hot sun under the whip, building buildings for the Egyptians. Uh, we find on the table the roasted egg, and it's hard to say how this egg got here. There's not a satisfactory answer for that. It has crept into Easter. We have such as the Easter egg. And it's thought that uh, the egg has some common source uh, to both... Easter and Passover, it may symbolize the Babylonian goddess Ishtar, the goddess of fertility. Uh, both of these uh, festivals are near the spring equinox when the world is coming to life and the trees are budding and uh, an egg, of course, is your symbol of fertility. And it's on the table. I've heard it suggested because it's roasted on the Jewish table and therefore impossible to eat, it comes out as hard as a billiard ball. Uh, I've heard it suggested it represents the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. But in any case, there are various theories. This is one artifact which is simply called traditional. The horseradish is on the plate in order to bring tears. Uh, it's very, very sharp red horseradish, uh, not the pleasant white kind uh, 
that we might eat with roast beef, but a very, very tart and bitter red sauce looking like raspberries and uh, and tasting like uh, something out of this world. It's <laughs> impossible to eat by itself, normally taken on a bit of unleavened bread, and it does cause the eyes to water, and that's what it's supposed to do. We are shedding tears for the sad days of slavery in Egypt. All this uh, that I'm describing now is being done by the people at the table at the point in the service where the father is reading about the slavery. He would uh, read a passage about the brick mortar, and so we stop, and everyone takes a little horosis. The uh, mortar on the table eats it with a bit of unleavened bread. He describes the tears, and everyone dips uh, a piece of lettuce or parsley into salt water and eats it, uh, or takes the horseradish so that they cry themselves, and so forth, as, as he progresses to each item. The shank bone of the lamb is there in the Jewish estimation because there being no temple in Jerusalem at this time and not for almost 2,000 years the lamb God's favorite sacrificial animal is not eaten anymore at Passover since there's no temple there's no sacrifices and so the favorite sacrificial animal has been retired as it were and the Jews do not eat it they keep however a shank bone of the Lamb as a symbol of the great days when there were the two Jerusalem temples and the Jews could uh, commemorate the ancient holiday of Passover uh, by eating lamb since it was the blood of the Lamb that spared them to begin with. We have to appreciate how old a holiday Passover is. Solomon's temple was built ten centuries before Christ and at that time Passover was an ancient holiday. After the foods are eaten, the father goes on in his retelling of the Exodus story, and there comes a ceremony with the unleavened bread itself, and this is most fascinating for the Christians. Three pieces of unleavened bread are selected and put in a stack. The middle one is taken out, and it's broken. It's wrapped in white linen, one of the white linens from the table, and it's buried. It's hidden. My father used to put it under the cushion on his chair, and he sat down carefully. It's hidden for the duration of three cups of wine. There are four ceremonial wine goblets drunk during the Passover service, and during the third one, the middle piece of matzah, the afakoman as it's called, is brought out from where it was buried in its white linen. And it's broken up, and everyone takes a piece with a little bit of wine. The name of the third cup is the cup of redemption. Now, it's very easy to see the wonderful Christian symbolism here. The three pieces of matzah we might think of as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The middle one, the Son, is taken out and it's broken. St. Paul said, this is my body broken for you. And then it is wrapped in white linen, as was our Lord's body. And it is put away, buried for three days. Well, three cups of wine in the service. Our Lord's body buried for three days in the tomb. Then, during the third cup of wine, the one called redemption by the Jews, 
The piece of unleavened bread is resurrected. It's brought back to the table. Everyone takes some and takes it with a little wine, commemorating what the Christians call communion. It's fascinating that the Christians are actually observing Passover when they take communion, and the Jews are actually observing communion when they celebrate Passover. If we take a piece of the unleavened bread and look at it carefully, we can see what a great symbol this is of our Lord's body. If you have seen one, it looks like a large soda cracker with uh, no seams. It's uh, baked, of course, without uh, fat and without any rising agent, no yeast, no leaven. And uh, so it comes out flat and it has stripes on it because it is baked on a grill. And it has holes poked through it. It's pierced to let the air uh, go through it because otherwise uh, it would stick flat to the grill. And so we have uh, a piece of bread, absolutely pure, innocent of leaven, striped, and we're reminded of the scripture, by his stripes are we healed, and pierced, and we're reminded of the scripture, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. This, said the Lord, is my body. The Lord gave blessings over the bread and the wine at the Passover table. We can see them in Matthew 26. That is, he's, it says in the scripture, he blessed the bread and gave it to them. He blessed the wine and gave it to them. And we know what he said because the blessings over bread and wine have not changed. When he gave them the bread, he said, Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech alam, hamotzi lechem in ha'oretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who bringest forth bread from the earth. What an excellent symbol. Bodies, after all, are made of, of earth. Adam's body was made of earth. And so when Christ says, this is my body, not only was he referring to this piece of pure, pierced, striped bread, but also to the earth. His blessing was so appropriate. To his disciples, his Jewish disciples, used to listening to this blessing whenever bread was taken, it was quite an appropriate symbol. For the wine, he said, Baruch Eloheinu melech borei Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who bringest forth the fruit of the vine. Now he had said that on a previous occasion that he was the true vine. Now his blood, the fruit of the vine, was shed for us for remission of sin, as he announced to his disciples. Another very appropriate image for his Jewish audience. It's fascinating to realize that the Jew repeats these blessings, said by our Lord, carries through the ceremony in symbol of breaking that middle piece, the Son of the Trinity, wrapping it in white linen, burying it, resurrecting it after three cups of wine, the third cup being called the cup of redemption, and then taking it with the wine, the blood that was shed for the remission of sin. The ceremony goes on after that as the father of the house continues to recount the great Exodus story. And we come to the place where it is time for the youngest member of the household to go to the door and open it in case Elijah comes down the street 
and wants to come in to announce the coming of the Messiah. I did this too in my family being the youngest child. I went to the door and opened it. I even walked out into the street and looked up and down both ways to see if there was an old man coming perhaps in a white robe looking for our home, wanting to come in and tell us that the Messiah had at last come. His chair was waiting, his goblet was there, and his wine was poured. But he never came. And I guess he won't come because he has come already. John the Baptist came to announce the Messiah. He came in the spirit of Elijah. This satisfied the prophecy. And the Jews unfortunately continued to wait for the announcement of the first coming, which has already been accomplished. After that melancholy moment, the service takes a pleasant turn. Uh, normally hymns are sung, and we see this too in Matthew 26. They sung a hymn before they uh, left the room where they celebrated Passover. In my home, one of our favorites was the hymn Dianu. Dianu is the Hebrew word for enough, or it is, it is sufficient. And the idea was more of a game than a song, but the father would uh, chant along and uh, yell out uh, one of the plagues, such as frogs. And then everyone else would yell, Dianu, 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 as if to say it should have been enough. That should have turned Pharaoh's heart. He should have let the Jews go. And the father would come in again and say, locusts, and everyone would yell, Dianu, Dianu. The tune is very simple. I can teach it to you by singing it once. Uh, when the father says frogs, we all sing together, Die, die, anu, die, die, anu, die, die, anu, die, anu, die, anu, die, anu, die, anu, die, die, anu, die, die, anu, die, anu, die, anu. And then the father comes back in with another plague and another and another out to ten. And at the tenth plague, the terrible killing of the firstborn son in every Egyptian home, everyone sings more slowly, die, anu, that was enough. Other hymns are sung. The family is feeling good. A big meal has been served. And once again, after 3,500 years, the marvelous Passover, the symbol of the Exodus, the deliverance of the Jews from slavery to their promised land, has been celebrated. We should say a word while we're at it for the other Jewish feasts, also given in Leviticus 23, because each and every one of them is symbolic of the deliverance by the Lord and of various issues of uh, his ministry and our walk. And it is fascinating to see this combination of uh, the old law, the the Old Testament rules of the Pentateuch, the book of Leviticus out of the first five books of the law, and how it coordinates with the fulfillment of God's plan in the Messiah. The Jewish year, as given in Leviticus 23, we could call God's calendar. We saw that it begins with uh, Passover in Nisan, the first Jewish month, that is the 14th day of uh, Nisan, Passover. And uh, this falls in uh, March or April on our calendar. 
And Passover, as we've seen, commemorates the death of the sacrificial lamb. We might uh, refer to Passover in a word as uh, the blood. Now, if you look in Leviticus 23, I'll give these scriptures as the feasts are presented by God to the Jews. The day following the Passover feast starts the week of unleavened bread. That's given in Leviticus 23, 6. In this week, the Jews are to eat uh, only unleavened bread. In Christian thinking, this is uh, the communion with Christ that is a holy, unleavened walk. A walk with sin purged out or forgiven from us. So, the Passover period first represents the sacrifice and then the fellowship with Christ, the holy walk. We might, uh, for a word symbol for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, just say the body. As uh, Christ took the unleavened bread and said, this is my body. Now the next feast uh, is still included in that first week in this March-April period. And it is the Feast of First Fruits. And it's celebrated on Sunday. Uh, the Jewish language is on the morrow after the Sabbath. Uh, during this festival eight-day period. And that's given in Leviticus 23, verses 10 to 12. In the Sunday of the eight-day feast, the first fruits are given in sacrifice to the Lord. Now, first fruits, uh, from the Christian point of view, looks prophetically to the time of the Christian being raised. And Christ was the first to be raised in his resurrection body. God identifies his son as the first fruit in 1 Corinthians 15.23. So we have three feasts right together in an eight-day period, the blood, the body, and to give first fruits a name, the resurrection. This concludes Side A. Please turn over your cassette for Side B.